0: Hello, friends and family. This is JJ Ruizcas, the host of Optimizing Me or Optimizando Me in Spanish, the show where we interview top performers from different industries to learn from their stories, their ups and downs, their lessons, and mostly their mindset. Today, we have the second part of the conversation with Banu Hantal Kellner, executive coach from top performer Founders of startups, very successful startups in, in many cases, and today we're going to dive deep into what is optimal performance. Last episode, it was around burnout, how to avoid it, what is it, and strategies. Now we're going to go deep into what is the opposite of optimal, oh sorry, of burnout. So, hello, Vanu, how is it going? How are you doing?
1: Hi, I'm doing great, busy but great.
0: Great. So let's go straight into. What is optimal performance?
1: Well, I think there is no, not one answer to that. Optimal performance in what context? Because the type of work that we do, I think what we consider optimal is different. So, are we talking about a knowledge worker? Are we talking about like someone who's doing like a more physical work or an athlete? I, I think optimal performance means different things in these contexts. But in, in terms of the people that I work with, I mainly work with founders and people in the tech industry. So I, I work with knowledge um, workers in that sense and leaders. And optimal performance in that in that sense to me is about how much of their strengths and internal resources, they are able to leverage. If they can leverage their unique set of talents, experiences, perspectives, everything that they have, they can utilize it in the most impactful or leveraged way. To me, that's the optimal performance. So optimal performance because of that may look completely different. And one individual and one leader than the other one because their strengths uh, and who they are and how they operate, it looks completely different. So optimal performance is not about being productive all the time or like being great at execution because there are people whose strengths is an execution and for them it may look like a very clean set of bam, 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 you know, simplifying and executing and done but for someone with a different kind of brain and personality it may look completely different and what you wouldn't maybe consider as like a productive day because the way you can leverage their strengths is you need to let them go because their minds are going to be more creative and chaotic and then infuse do bunch of seemingly random things or it may even look as if they are wasting time at that, like from outside or internally, they can think that. But for them to come up with a really novel solution, an idea, and a perspective, that that's a necessary period, and then they will come back with this idea that is gonna 10x, 100x, 1000x what they are doing, have to leverage what they are doing as a company and what they can achieve and they can think bigger, they can come up with like solutions that are extraordinary. So for that person, optimal performance looks like these, you know, like go expand, discover, release, like not knowing where they are going and it's not about being busy and putting execution and coming up with this, something brilliant. So it depends. Um, But I believe it really needs to be tailored to the individual and I think people in the leadership positions maybe have an easier time to adjust their work towards their strengths and how they function the best they bring the best out of themselves but even for other people where they may not uh, be completely designing the way they work there's still that can be done around um, figuring out what is their optimal performance and not like one specific uh, way of doing things.
0: Got it. So now on, on that same note, how do we start identifying our individual best performance?
1: So let's talk about, for example, strengths. Strengths are very tricky because if something comes naturally to you and you're really great at it without really putting any effort into it, People take it for granted. They don't usually see this as really a strength because it doesn't feel like work, because it doesn't feel like, I didn't put that much effort, like it's just something you doing and it happens, whatever. So they don't really focus on that because it comes so easy. And a side effect of this is because it's so effortless for them. It comes easy to them, natural to them to do these things. When other people cannot do it that way, they're like, "What's wrong with these people? How can I do that?" And so, if you get you find yourself frustrated with other people, come on the that thing. Like, it may be because that's your strength, and you're not realizing that's your strength. You assume that everybody has got it that easy, right? So that's one way of one indicator if you're getting frustrated with people on that you know, thing, very frequently, you may look into that. Maybe that's your strength. You, It's unrecognized. So I think the strength is something that by its nature, like, easier for us to do. So, and when we know that what these things are easier, if we spend most of our time utilizing those, We're going to have an easier time. We're going to do that, get it done faster. And it's going to be easier for us to actualize ourselves, our potential in that sense. If I'm putting my investment into things that are already easy and natural for me, like things happen, you know, effortlessly, right? But most people are going to focus on where they are weak, and try to get it to a level that it's going to be, you know, acceptable for them. And it takes a lot of energy and effort to do that, to just to get an average degree. If you must, of course, you have to, if it's a critical thing. But I think a better use of investment of our time and effort is into what comes natural and easy to us. And finding jobs that are that like it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to improve ourselves yes the continuous process there's always something to improve but we get better results uh, by capitalizing on strengths
0: and this one reminds me of something that uh, peter drocker the business guru from last century used to say and it is it takes more time to take a person from a, from a detrimental performance into a mediocre one than to take this same person from an average level in something to a high performance level. So basically what you're saying is that the ROI of our investment of time and energy is way bigger on the second second option. Is that right?
1: Yes, and I think It's about like when people are perfectionistic, they are trying to fix everything and like they want to be at everything, which is not even possible. That's not what we are saying. But striving for excellence is different. So you find what you're already good at, it comes natural to you, and you get excellent at it. You build on it. And from a manager's perspective, I would say do the same with your team. Invest more time and focus most on your best performing team members, not the, you know, worst performing team members. The way people naturally go to is like if somebody's performance is not up to par, they're going to spend a lot of time and energy into that. And when you are people performing already at the top level because they don't need your attention that much, you're going to ignore them. But there is, then you're leaving a lot on the table because if you take that person as already as a high performance, you have them to get like this stellar performance to what they can achieve. I think it's an easier journey and it will change the result drastically. So you play where you're strong as a team, as a person, not where you're weak, and it's if- crucial. No, I'm just saying there's, of course, caveat, like sometimes our weaknesses can create serious problems. So you have to do what you must. You have to make sure like you, you're you not, your weakness is not going to cause a critical error in whatever you're doing. If you're a leader, if you're a founder, you have to make sure you hire someone to cover that area. I wouldn't try to work on that myself as a founder. But if you are an IC, um, if you're not, you don't have a team to cover that. Part, then if you have to do it yourself, like I would really make sure if it's a crucial thing or not. And if it's not, I will again base my performance on what I'm good at and like try to manage up uh, with my manager to set the expectations of going more towards that degree that they're going to be doing more of that type of a job. Um, There's some room for that too, but of course, we have to do what we must.
0: And I was going to play a little bit of devil's advocate with what you said in regards of we are focused on, as leaders, to or their suggestion is to focus on what we are very strong and not only into getting the, the weaknesses worked up until a mediocre level or an average level. But on the flip side, many people will say, but wait a second, Banu. The chain is only as strong as the weakest of their one of their what is it of their links, correct? Or along those lines. So, how do we balance this thing as leaders, even within ourselves, not only within a team, right?
1: So, my belief is if a person is not successful in in the position they are, first thing I would say if I have a team and then one member is not really performing up to par. Okay, I, I would first thing like is there anything that can be set up differently in terms of their position? Are they set for success? And if there's anything I can do to change certain things, they are, they are set up for success. And if that's not the case or I do that and still it's the, the the same problem, it's like we are getting like the best average performance, to me it indicates maybe this is not the right place for that person. It's not the right job. People are really bad at accepting that the fit problems. Same from the person in that position and the manager. It's really hard for accepting, you know, like we want to make it about ourselves or about them. Sometimes it's not about the person's performance. It's just not a right fit, right? It doesn't work. If the person is not feeling that like confident and they're not like rising up to the occasion to show that performance that is necessary. Maybe it's about thinking of like, can I change the position of this person, department of this person? Like, how can I leverage the strengths of this person? What are the strengths of this person? And I would like to either change the position for that person to leverage their strengths, change the position if I feel like their strengths. And if it's still not a fit, that's not a fit. I wouldn't try to make it work because I think it's an emotional process. People don't want to let go. But most of the time I feel they are doing more of a disservice to the person by keeping a lot of time, like hoping that like this gradual improvements. And because it takes away that person's potential in, you know, Something else that they would be a great fit at and they can be successful because once we feel start feeling I'm not succeeding. It can be a vicious cycle taking that person's performance down. So I think it's the responsibility from both sides. The person should take responsibility to ask the question, am I set up for success here in this position, in this company, in the way things are? If you're not set up for success, I would change that job. Same from the manager. Is this person set up for success? If they are not set up for success, either change the environment or the situation, job description, the team, whatever that is, or you have to let that person go. I don't think it benefits anyone to keep someone in a position where they are not set up for success. And it happens all the time because it's a very emotional decision. And people feel like I'm doing a bad thing if I quit or if I let someone go. it's like being in a romantic relationship too long. Even you know, like you know, in the first six months, ah, this is not going to work out. And then you are the three more years. Who are you service to, right? It, it makes everyone miserable. It's going to end at the end of So it's like don't elongate things, you know. Then they they go and then find other partners and they're really happy. You know, sometimes it's just not a match.
0: So if this one is basically loss aversion bias, cognitive bias, right? If what I have here right now, it may not be worth, even not be even functional. But since I have this thing, I know this devil better than the next one or something like.
1: That. Yeah, yeah, and that's natural. But I think high-performing teams become high-performing by like making sure that everybody is set up for success, so we can pull each other up, and that's naturally happening but not like if there is like as you're saying the weakest link there is a huge gap there then it's gonna take the whole team you know down there definitely and it has cultural effects and stuff like that and for that person it's horrible to feel like the weakest link in a team right and then your confidence starts lowering and then it lowers your performance even more you're better off where you feel like you can thrive. And then the question is, I, can I thrive here or not? Challenges are okay. Not, and you're not going to be perfect at everything, right? Figuring out, the gaps are okay. But I think there needs to be a sense of, okay, like, I'm set up for success. I can learn. I can, you know, I can work. I can figure it out. I have the resources to do so, and I'll go for it is the mindset.
0: Now, let's go back to to optimal performance, individual optimal performance. So we narrowed this down to knowledge workers' optimal performance, which, like you said, optimal performance does not mean productivity. So what are, we talked about the context, now I would like to ask, what are other factors that you see in common high performance? And when I mean high, it's funny because this is optimal performance, right? And uh, what are other internal and external factors that you see as common denominators?
1: Before I get to that, I want to touch on even the word productivity. What does it even mean? What is productivity?
0: To produce something.
1: Produce what?
0: Something that you're supposed to produce, right?
1: Yeah. Productivity usually indicates number, right? Produce. Lots of things. If I produce lots of things, then I mean that I'm productive. And productivity is good. I think we we inherited this from the industrial era. If you're running a factory, you produce 100 today, tomorrow 200. 200 is better than 100. 1,000 is better than 200, right? million is better than a thousand it's a number game it's obvious the more productive my factory is the better are my business outcomes so you take that and put in a knowledge worker. what are you producing as a knowledge worker on a daily basis the number of quantified
0: of quantified what because the majority of the knowledge workers are hired to solve problems in this case problems number of problems solved now that makes no sense
1: so yeah so this is not about quantity anymore we need to look at the quality but if i whatever i measure is gonna grow right if i'm measuring people up against their productivity whatever that means is it the number of meetings is it like how much busy i said i'm like what is that like i don't know Is it how many lines of code you write? Like, how do I evaluate and knowledge workers' performance based on their productivity number of things that they produced? So that's why I don't like to talk about productivity in this context.
0: What would be be a better word for instead of productivity?
1: So I like the performance, right? The quality of it to me is... And it's different for the different positions, right? So if I have an operational executive, what I want to see is an operational excellence, right? Detail orientation, nothing really falls through the racks. It's like a very structured detail, like everything just works fine. The operations work fine. Like, okay, you have it. But I wouldn't hold the person and executives whose job is strategy. It's not how many strategies that person is going to come up with. It's the quality of the strategy, quality of the thinking and the reflection that is going to tell me about their performance. The depth of their thinking, right? And if your job is, you know, like if you're in design and you're creating like whatever elements of design, that you, that you need to think about quality. Like, would you have a graphic designer who can bring you ten logos in an hour, or would you prefer a logo designer who's going to take twenty-four hours bring one, but a really nice one? And the other one, like you have like ten in an hour, like all look like shit. I got, what am I going to supposed to do with that, right? which is one is more valuable but the problem is like we reward and punish people still in terms of their productivity unfortunately not even productivity we're not even looking at the results like about business how much you look like you're working you're doing a lot
0: also even the number of hours that they spend in in their seats not even producing but in their seats
1: Yeah, I think when people were going on the offices, it was definitely a thing, right? I'm giving you this many hours, and this is what I'm providing for you. And I think when remote work has started, it shifted a little bit more. Like, I don't care how many, like, I don't know what you're doing at home. Like, I, I care about the results you're bringing me, right? Who cares how many hours? I would prefer a person who gives me excellent results in two hours than 10 hours. I would... Prefer a person who just works two hours a day and enjoys the rest of the day if they can bring me the results in those two hours. But most managers cannot accept that. They will feel really upset if they knew the person is only working for two hours, even if they have excellent results. And that puts us in trouble because we are not looking at the right thing. And that lowers everybody's performance. Why? Because then I need to start doing things in a way, like regardless of the quality, I will be rewarded by doing more, not higher quality. So I'm going to always produce less quality, even if I could do it lower quality, because if I take my time to produce something higher quality, I'm gonna, I feel like I'm going to be punished. I'm not going to look like I'm doing a good job. So this is something that we need to, in, in general, change our like mindset about what a performance means for a knowledge worker. Because, yeah, we still approach it as an industrial age. And, and even our management practices are based on that. So if I'm a factory manager, if I have this more like strict command and control type of relationship, I'm a little bit more intimidating. It worked. And the rewards and punishments, they worked. Because if you trigger fight or flight system in your workers, physically you're going to have more energy because you're in a fight or flight mode. Like all resources in your body now is sent to your muscles. So you're going to work longer hours. You're going to work faster. And when we are in that zone, we don't feel pain. So you're not going to feel pain. You're going to be numb to those things normally. That's why, like, the moment you relax sometimes, this is where all the physical problems start. Because when you're in fight or flight, because your nervous system thinks I'm fighting a life danger here, I cannot feel my pain or physical problems right now. It's all shut down, right? So they will work long hours without really complaining. They may drop dead really young, (laughs) after like decades of doing this. But the factory managers, they don't care. They will replace the worker. End of story. So it positively affected productivity in that sense. And also in this phase, like people make a lot of mistakes because the thinking is really narrowed down. Attention is only narrowed on the source of threat. So we are not, we cannot pay attention to everything else, just the source of threat. But in a factory, if you're doing a manual job or you're doing it all the time, like, I don't need your thinking brain. It's automatic. It's like driving a car after a while. You know, you can use your mind for other things while driving a car because it's automatic at this point. So for factory worker, they're doing something automatic. I don't really need your sophisticated parts of your brain, your prefrontal cortex to be working, right? So it, it's fine. It worked. Great. Now, knowledge worker, they feel threatened. They are in fight or flight mode. The oxygen and glucose taken away from their prefrontal cortex. And prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that can make long-term plans, like long-term visions, and turn it into a plan and allow us to inhibit our short-term desires, so that we can take the actions that we feel like we need, right? That's the part that helps us to make strategies. That's the part that helps us solve problems. That's the part that allows us to see the problems. Not only that, that's the part that allows us to have empathy with others. That's the part that allows us to collaborate with others. That's the part that can think complex things. And consider different perspectives. So if your prefrontal cortex, this part behind your forehead, if its functioning is minimized, you are temporarily rendered stupid. So when we create these threatening work environments, we take these brilliant people and then we render them stupid during work time. And, like, they are not even near their potential, right? Now that, like, the fear of punishment and, like, the performance reviews, I hate them. I told, you know, they are not a performance management tool at all. And they create a lot of threat in people's mind. Like, why are we doing this? What is this serving to? Like, it's a very threatening process. Having these conversations are difficult. Like, being graded is, like, a very threatening process and we know from data after a performance review top performance performance drops low performance performance drops like why are we doing this and it costs so much time it's
0: a performance dropper in other words the the
1: exactly but so what i'm saying is it's the the performance of a knowledge worker is a completely different thing and we are still uses these antiquated systems from the industrial era. There is no culture that developed for knowledge workers get. The workplace is definitely a performance squisher for a knowledge worker. Because people don't understand how to get the best out of a knowledge worker. And it's definitely not the hustle culture. Hustle culture is not. You know, there's times and places for hustle. Don't get me wrong especially when you're in a passionate state that's that's when it is at its best but i think we need to create a new science and the art i think we have more science developing but it's not used in practice there's a gap between the academia and like what we know from science and the practices in the real world like maybe bridge that but also develop an art of managing the performance of a knowledge worker because the current system is totally mismatching to the needs of knowledge workers and the performance we need.
0: This is a systemic problem, in other words, that we carried over past metrics into a completely different environment that uses completely different resources and has different demands, therefore. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the question that I asked um, at the beginning, which was, what are some factors that you've seen as like common denominators in high performers? How are they behaving physiologically? How are they behaving emotionally or even mentally? What about the context?
1: I think one key factor is like how well you regulate yourself is extremely important. So what do I mean by regulation? Let's say something happened and you got upset, right? And then your whole physiology is going to change. Your mental state is going to change. Everything, you know, the emotions, the thoughts, like the content of it is you're going to be like, right? Place, right? And it's okay. We are human and we want that to happen. It's okay for it to happen. A person who can regulate well will go through that and come back to the baseline. Regulate themselves back and, like, whatever take that lesson and learning from that, or whatever needs to be taken care of from that experience. And then, when you are back to the baseline, now you can deal with it as an issue that it really is, and then you can deal with it, right? And they take actions towards it. But the person who cannot regulate themselves, they may stay in that state for over long periods of time. They get upset. I obsess about it all day. I go to home, I think about it, I wake up, I think about it, I'm resenting that person that le- leads into the next day. So I cannot come back to the baseline to deal with the, co- with the core of the issue. So the high performance are not the people who are not getting affected by things. They get affected by things. They felt threatened, they feel angry, or like they go through these things as well they are able to come back to the baseline.
0: So is this some sort of emotional resiliency muscle?
1: Yes, and it's not just emotional. It's it's a psychophysiological resiliency because if your physiology is not coming back to the baseline, your mind cannot come back to the baseline. There's no separation such that, um, that the physiological state determines the portfolio of mental states you can have. And some people are naturally like developed it through childhood, maybe they've seen models they you know learned it they they have it naturally, and some people didn't have it naturally, and they had to develop it and I think that's one key factor and you know like they because of that they can come back to that baseline psychophysiological they can move on and get things going and solve problems rather than getting stuck in the problem. So I think it's a very important skill for a knowledge worker. Another, um, I think, thing in a high-performance and a knowledge worker sense is the mental flexibility. People who are very rigid and get stuck um, in there and they cannot, Um, think around different perspectives and possibilities are going to have a harder time to deal with the demands of a very fast-changed environment which we all live in, and especially in in the startup world. Uh, It's a very key, important skill um, of a high-performance, the mental flexibility that they have. Um, Another one is, as I said, really finding what you're really good at and like leveraging that and you know striving for excellency without falling into the trap of perfectionism because perfectionism lowers performance striving for excellence increases performance striving for excellence is not about being perfect not about not making mistakes so when you're striving for excellence you see the the road going towards excellence is like a bunch of failure and they're all okay because you're, you know, by breaking things, making mistakes, I'm learning, I'm getting there. Perfectionism is every time you make a mistake, it's like the violation of like, I'm not worthy. Right. And to be perfect, to be worthy. So they work in a very opposite way. So the common thing I see is like in a high performance, they have a strive for excellence, yet a lot of room for mistakes Mm -hmm. and they would go and try and break things and move on and then, you know, make use of that. Whereas perfectionists have a harder time to actualize their potential.
0: It's, it's interesting because it is around the um, mental rigidity, in other words, or mental flexibility, like you mentioned. Um, a few weeks ago, we interviewed Wes Kayo from Maven, from and she was talking about holding Strong opinions, loosely held, right? And I said that was that was key because you can still have your opinions. Nevertheless, do not get too dogmatic or attached to these ones to the point that your mental even, flexibility gets hampered.
1: I agree, hundred percent. Because it's like a working hypothesis. You have to have a hypothesis, a story to navigate life, right? You cannot, like, mental flexibility does not mean don't believe in anything, don't say anything, right? It's not about that. It's When you are there, you need to have conviction. But you need to be quick when you see it doesn't work to change it. If it's not taking you to where you want to go, eh, maybe the story, the story that you believe in is not helping you. I would question it. And I would be open-minded. Like if the environment gives me signals that this may be harmful, this may be not useful, then I should be ready to critically think about it and find better ones that works. Um, it's it's kind of being like a scientist. A good scientist will test stuff. They will come with an hypothesis and they will test it. But they will not be religiously like... Connected to that hypothesis spent all their lives trying to prove something and they are never getting the results Like what's the point of that? A scientist will look at it and then pay attention to those things Maybe that random stuff that comes up Right, like there's a lot of things like when they were experimenting it completely something else like what they were doing a Glue and it was a failed attempt. The glue was not really sticking well enough right And there was this person who had an amazing mental flexibility where most people would see it as like, oh, I failed at making this glue. This is shit, this doesn't stick. They looked at it and said, oh, what can I use this for? This is interesting. And turned it into post-it notes. Right? There's so many examples of it in the past. So. But it's not just for products. I think it's it's important to have that mindset and the flexibility of the mind to even like turn mistakes into, you know, uh, success. Or even if not success, okay, like something happened. I'm not getting where I needed to go with this one. Let me change it and try something else really quick. And that kind of agility in trying something new sometimes gives people an edge in competition
0: hmm. which sounds very tight to also receiving feedback openly
1: if you have a easier time with the idea of mistake and not being perfect so it, feedback becomes much easier to digest right the perfectionism is also makes it really hard because if you're giving me a feedback that I don't like that means that I'm not perfect then I'm not worthy is is very hard for a lot of people like that takes um, a lot of internal resources and make the person a bit more defensive towards taking the feedback because they feel like it's, it's a criticism. The way I see feedback is like it's like sonar you do something and then you send it in the world and in in sonar for example you send the sound waves if it hits that wall for example it'll come back to me Telling me there's a wall there, right? So I can place a wall over there by that the sonar feedback that I get, right? And feedback is like that too. It doesn't mean like I do a leadership, for example, 360s and I always tell my clients we are not looking for truth here. There is no truth with capital T about your performance. It's what you do intersecting with how they see the world, how they perceive it. Right, that's wrong. You send it what you get out of it from that person. That's why one person will rate you highly, and it will, you know, like you see all these things. Right, this is the same person. How come that person sees it so highly, and then the other person thinks that that's something that should be changed? So, what is the truth? None, it's not about that, it's not about me as a person and what I do being good or bad, it gives me information. When you send this wave to this person, this gets, gives me this feedback. So it gives me more information about the person than my behavior. So I understand the intersection. So I understand what my landscape is. So the feedback can be seen as like the sonar that lets me know the environment I'm in and the players in the environment. And through changing my behavior, I can change my outcomes. So when you see it in that way and not take it personally, it's understanding it's just like the intersection of the person receiving the feedback and the person giving the feedback. Then you you don't personalize and it's easier to fix if there is a problem. Or maybe it's a positive feedback, right? as a go. I'm getting positive feedback. Then the question is how do I double down on this? That's to me that's the opportunity. That's that's where I want to really focus on.
0: Yeah, and some something that I tell myself and I have been sharing more is one of my belief system is, is success is feedback with makeup and failure is feedback without makeup. So either way it is information. <laughs>
1: news. <laughs> and again i think these are all stories i really believe everything we think is a story as humans the stories are the way we navigate the world what success is a story that you you con- you define success right or our culture defines success it's a story your story of success may be different than mine what i call failure may be completely different than yours, right? And may not match. So there's no inherent truth in these things. These are the stories that we tell ourselves about success, about failure, and about things. So, and if we are careful about the stories we are telling ourselves, especially about around the feedback, we may have much easier time, right? If... Feedback is given and for, especially for managers. As a matter of fact, at all times in real time, and there's no separation, good, bad, this, that. I think people will get used to just, like it's a part of the process, right? And I think the way we, we approach feedback should change as well. It can be done much better. And then the way we are doing it is like, oh, like I don't give feedback to the person unless there's something that really frustrates me and of course then feedback is threatening because every time it happens it means that you're not happy with me right then i i develop a relationship to that right and whereas you never notice everything great i do
0: you know what what uh what i think about it it's when i was a kid and something i did something air quote wrong right then therefore we needed to have a conversation, correct? So the word conversation to be me meant negative feedback. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. clear.
1: So, but if it's like people need feedback on a consistent basis and feedback is not as simple as good job, bad job, this and that, or, you know, and it, it's important to develop a performance management or feedback system that is consistent in real time, frequent. Not quarterly, biannually, worst yearly performance review. That's not feedback. To me, it's I don't know what it is, but that that's um not feedback that is helpful for us to change behavior. And it's exposing people to a lot of bias, and it because of it's a very biased process because the human brain cannot really condense six months of information about a person in an unbiased way and given unbiased feedback. That's just not impossible for anyone. So we have to accept that. And then when you have the bias and then the mismatch between the receiver and the giver, then there's a lot of triggers of the feedback being fair or not. And then when you trigger the sense of being unfair, then you are triggering the safety system of the brain. You're like creating a threatening environment in the brain. So yeah, feedback is, is really crucial part of self-improvement and high performance and finding the best ways of um, giving and receiving it. Another point of it, I think we need to change the system in a way that we are not giving feedback. We are asked for feedback. So the, I think the responsible party should change and like the person should be actively asking for feedback and specific feedback. And if you can create a culture um, like that, then people have more openness because they will be the asking for feedback. And we have to figure out how to model that and have to create it as a process. Um, but I think in, that, in those cases, I've seen it working much, much better.
0: So, question now and, and, and I know that the audience the audience has this in, in the in their minds and it is how do we overcome perfectionism <laughs> that is one of the
1: questions. Oh that, that's a that's a difficult one um to answer in a simple way because it, it's very it's very deep. I think perfectionism is the need like I need to be Perfect to be worthy. And I'm never perfect. Therefore I'm unworthy. One day. Maybe I'll be worthy. Right. And the only real way I found out of this. Is. To go through that internal journey. To find the worth now. Here. Like you don't need success to be worthy. You don't need anything to be. You're already worthy. And everybody else is as well. And this is something that my clients struggle with a lot because they are in a subculture where exceptionalism is so powerful. You have to be exceptional to be worthy. And because that's the message they got from where they were. So because in you know, Silicon Valley, San Francisco Bay Area, you have people from all over the world. And these are really brilliant and really successful when they are young. And they are known in their communities as being exceptional. They were exceptional maybe because of their IQ, they were a successful student, they started maybe a business really early. So they were like, exceptional in, in the environment they were in. Then what happens? They come here, they're in a circle, with all the other exceptional people from all over the world, As exceptional as they are, all of a sudden they are average. How do you deal with that? If your sense of worth depends on being exceptional. All of a sudden you're not worthy anymore. And this happens a lot to like the Ivy League kind of schools. Um, In my country, I went to university. It was the number one university and exactly the same thing happened all over the country. You're, you know, only... Top of the top is selected to go to the school. And all these kids who felt really exceptional and successful coming there, all of a sudden, all your friends are as smart as you, as good students as you are, all of a sudden, you're average. And the depression levels were, like, super high. And then I read also studies in, for example, Harvard. It's a very common problem, right? Harvard students are much more... uh, depressed then maybe like a college or university that is more of an average they don't have as much problems and that that's one of the things like what do we tie our worth to it's crucial because when we lose it then you have a problem you see it among models they feel like their worth is with their beauty and they come and like start a modeling car- career all of a sudden, everybody is skinny and tall and pretty. And there's going to be always people prettier than you, right? Skinnier than you and stuff like that. and Or like smarter than you, more successful. There is always that. So as long as we have an equation, my worth depends on this, it's always a game to lose. And in perfectionism case, it's even worse. I have to be perfect to be worthy. But you're playing a game you will never win because you'll never be perfect. And you will feel never worthy and all your life you're gonna strive for that. There's no way out of that game. But if you find it, you know, change your belief systems. Like, no, I'm already worthy. I don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect to be worthy. You're a human being. Reflection of like many different things of your ancestors' DNAs and the environment you grew up in, like whatever happened, it's like a complex concoction that made you you. And you're just worthy by nature, by definition. I really believe in that. And you don't need to achieve anything, show anything to be worthy. Once we are already worthy, then we can follow our natural strengths, curiosities, and you know, interests or values much more easily. Feeling worthy is not going to make us lazy people who doesn't want to do anything because I'm already worthy. And some people are afraid of that. If I feel worthy now, then I don't need to do anything. Right? I've never seen that happening. I've never seen a person because they felt worthy already. Oh, okay, now I don't need to do anything. I'm just going to just lay down here day and night. Never happened.
0: I think we are hardwired for constant growth.
1: I I. I think we are born with it, that desire to grow and improve. I see it in my daughter. Like every single day, like she's trying to do that. this new skill that she's developed. She's trying to do it better. The second she can hold the spoon, she wants to feed herself. Like I don't need to reward her. I don't need to ever tell her, do up the skill, Ella. No, like it's natural. I don't do anything. Every single day she grows and improves. That's our nature. There are no lazy people. We are not just leveraging their, like, we either broke the system, like, we, we just made them super afraid to try anything. We either beat them out of that natural inclination, they lost touch of that, like, actually doing growing is good. You know, something went wrong in the process. I, I don't believe there's any human being who is like worthless, who will not want to do anything and contribute or anything. It's because I think something went wrong either as a culture, the messages they got and the fears they got trapped in. Uh,
0: what it's coming to my mind is by definition, we have an optimal performance by definition, and at some point, the stories that we accepted to believe in changed the course of that performance.
1: Yeah, I think if, as you said, if we were able to provide the environment and the belief system that allows us to follow those, you know, inclinations, natural instincts, and strengths and build upon that, I think everyone would be an optimal performer. But you, we have to understand also, like I think this opportunity we have right now, humans didn't always have that because humans had to go through really tough times. They needed to like tighten things down, become, become rigid and protective to survive. And it was useful at that time. It's the context that makes something adaptive or not adaptive. Maybe allowing everyone, giving them the opportunity, is like following all this and supporting this is wonderful, beautiful, but wouldn't be adaptive at all contexts. The sad thing is, finally, we have it as humans. We are living in the golden age of humanity. Like we have, especially for us, not everywhere in the world, maybe, but I'm talking about me like people around me and people i'm working with what more can you have as a human your life is not in danger even financially like they don't yeah like they may if they lose their job yeah they can go find another job never they're not worried about being on the street you don't have to worry about a roof like Worst case scenario, you can go to your parents' house. Like, there is some solution. Like, you'll never be hungry on the street at this and that, or jobless, or whatever. There's no real risks associated with our lives. Right? How many humans in the history of humanity were able to go through a period like like this? If we cannot leverage our potential now, that uniqueness of the people. And it's such a waste. Like this is finally we have this time and era. And not only we have it, we would get so much out of our people if we approach it this way. And almost like giving them the the sun, the water, like the fertilizer, everything they need, whatever type of tree they are, like they can just like blossom and give the fruits and contribute to the society at the best fruits that they can. If it's a orange tree, it's an orange tree. If it's an apple tree, it's a, I'm not gonna try to force an apple from an orange tree, right? Where do I plant them is the kind of, it's like, I think leaders job is almost like being a gardener and create a biodynamic environment, you know, and you know the biodynamic, you see these like wineries, you plant these kind of flowers because it attracts the bees pollens these plants. So you don't need like pesticides and stuff like that. So there's definitely a lot to play with there. Um, in terms of seeing humans with as in, in terms of tremendous potential and then human flourishing is different than managing productivity.
0: Wow. Okay. This, this is a, uh... Deep conversation. We we started with optimal per- performance and we ended up in human flourishing so far.
1: <laughs> yeah, because I think for for performance in, in our sense, and especially when you're thinking about technology, I think it's a form of flourishing, right? Humanity, like going to the edge of something. It's not like producing something expected. It's like creating new things, creating new products, you're changing the world at all times, intentionally or unintentionally. And I, I really believe miserable leaders create miserable futures. Features. And if you put yourself as a leader, as a place like where you can flourish, it's easier to create organization that is set for allowing its member to flourish. And then you're gonna create products and services I think there's gonna be more expensive and help maybe humanity to flourish. Okay.
0: This this is uh, this episode I know is going to let me think in for so long. So I'm very grateful for that, Banu. So just to finalize, what are well again, where can we find you on the internet?
1: You can go to my website, leaderspsychologist.com. Um and I'm on LinkedIn, Banu Hantal Kellner or you can reach out to me at Twitter. Um, my handle is at, at Coach Bano.
0: At Coach Bano. Perfect. We're going to set this up. What are lasting thoughts that you will give to the audience? And I want to end up last, like we did last time, with a question. So you can type whether the, 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 the answer to the question, which is going to be another question, or the message. It's up to you. But the, the question that I wanted to ask you is, what is it something that you can encourage people to ask themselves so that they can start optimizing getting uh, improved performance in other words flourishing
1: well in terms of performance I think something everybody should ask ask themselves to get out of that mindset of like hours and this and that like and I, I feel like people create more a lot of unnecessary work for themselves, and they lower their performance. One great question to ask is, how do I make this easier, not harder? Because we value, the person value is it's like hard work. If I don't suffer for it, that doesn't mean anything, right? That's why we don't use our strengths enough, because it doesn't require hard work. It's easy for me. Therefore, it's, it's not worthy, right? So to get out of that mindset is about, I would ask the question, How would I make, if I'm a job, if an IC, how do I make this job easier for me? How do I make, turn this process in easier way? How do I make my product easier to use? How do I create a product that is easy for me to build and easy for people to use? Like There's always, I think, great things to gain from that practice of asking the question, how do I make it easier?
0: Thank you so much, Manu. This conversation was amazing. And I know that we will have to keep having these kind of conversations on, on, on different topics because we could go deeper and deeper in many of these ones. Before I, I, I forget, is there anything, last thing, before you would like to say to the audience before we end up?
1: Well, I think... Last thing I want to say that self-compassion is so important for everyone to develop... <laughs> And we do every day what we can and it's okay, you know? And I think we are just like sometimes too goal oriented. Like, how do I optimize myself? How do I be the best? Like, yeah, like my business is built on that. I really believe in, you know, like constant natural organic improvement is wonderful because that's our nature, but not when it's compulsive. Not if you feel like that's what's gonna be, you're okay you do what you can today tomorrow you do your best and that's all you can do at any given time and it's okay you're good you know just say like don't don't like there's not much uh, uh, you know let, let that go and I can enjoy the ride and do what you can that's it I, I think we are overcomplicating the growth and improvement you know uh-huh. part. do yes. your best <laughs> each day and every
0: day and that's it nice thank you so much Banu. i really really appreciate the time that you have had today for thank you so if you guys enjoyed this conversation with banu hantal Kellner, give it a thumbs up and subscribe to receive notifications for upcoming interviews that's all for today keep learning keep optimizing and i'll see you soon